Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, the COC's new podcast exploring everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To kick off our first season, we're starting at the very beginning. We'll take you through the arc of attending an opera, from first opera experiences as audience members, to how we create and hear sound, how we adapt stories for the stage, and more. In this episode, Julie and I speak with four fascinating people from inside and outside the opera world about their very first time experiencing opera. We chatted with acclaimed soprano Angel Blue, who listeners might remember as Mimi in La Boheme at the COC a couple of seasons ago, and also with COC music director Johannes Debus. Both Angel and Johannes were quite young when they first attended an opera. Then we chatted with Midori Marsh. She's in her first season of the Ensemble Studio, the COC's Young Artist Program, and Canadian visual artist Sherry Boyle. So they're both relatively new to opera as compared to Angel and Johannes. Both of these two experienced their first opera a little later in life and bring such fascinating insights to the conversation. Julie, I'm really excited for today's episode. Yeah, it's fun to have this opportunity to dive into this because we've been talking about it now for so long and it's been weeks and months in the planning and to now have this opportunity to bring together all these different pieces, uh, different voices, different perspectives, and then having those be the lens by which we talk about and look at opera. Right. And we have so many amazing guests, like you said, so many different perspectives. And I can't wait to talk about everything that they, uh, all their insights and everything they've shared with us. Yeah. And I'm excited because these people are experts in their field, like in terms of their craft, their artistry, their technical ability. And yet they also bring themselves, like their whole personhood and humanity to the conversation. So uh, we always get that personal story in there as well, whether they're an expert or whether they're someone who's new to opera. The variety of topics we talk about are really pertinent, I think, to younger audiences and people maybe starting to get into opera for the first time or really exploring it. Um, this ain't your grandma's opera podcast. It's like, does someone's grandma have an opera podcast? Because <laughs> I don't know. We're, it's quarantine time. Who so knows? Everybody's knows? starting a podcast right now. Yeah, but you're totally right. It's the sense of we hope that by listening to this, your grandma feels like she's a part of opera and that you, the listener, feel like you're a part of it and that the future of opera is yours to create. So we're here to chat about, about the past and about the present and also to look to the future and to invite you into the conversation of what that future will look like. And your grandma, she can come too. Please, grandmas are all very welcome. So first, let's hear from Angel Blue about seeing her first opera at just four years old. just get right off into it. Um, I hear that your first opera you saw when you were four. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. I, well, it wasn't a fully staged production. It was um, turned out in concert. And uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio, because my, my mom is from Cleveland. And at the time we were visiting her family. And my dad uh, wanted to go to Severance Hall and uh, see a concert. So we went to see this 
uh, Turandot in concert. I, I don't remember how long it was. I know it wasn't very long. It really was um, condensed, you know, as it wasn't the fully staged production. But I just remember the loud brass music and... Um, I remember feeling overwhelmed by by the orchestra, you know, just feeling like the power come from the stage of hearing that da 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 from Turndot, you know, that that is a that is a motif that will always be stuck in my head, just because it's so, I don't know, but probably because it's the first thing that I ever really walked around humming, you know, because I it meant so much to me when I was a kid listening to it. Um, I remember seeing Turndot sing. And I didn't know it was her, but the big scene that she has, the Inquestareja, uh, that scene, I just remember her being very bright. And I remember saying to my dad, um, I, I said, Dad, I want to be like the woman in the light. And he said, you can absolutely be like the woman in the light. And it just, I, I don't know, that, that sort of bit me when I was four, and it's, it's been with me ever since. Also, Robin, I'm going to just jump in for a moment because there's something that Angel said that really moved me. You spoke of being overwhelmed by the orchestra as a young person. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we could dig into that a little bit more in terms of what that that feeling was in your body or your spirit in terms of that encounter with the orchestra. Yeah, for me, it was mainly just the sound. I, I hadn't heard anything so loud. I hadn't heard anything so so loud, so strong, and something that made me cry. You know, I didn't know why I was crying when Turndot was singing. I don't remember what it was that made me feel. Um, it, I had, I, I know that I had a series of emotions, but you know, at, at that age, and even to the to this day, I don't, I can't really explain them. I just know that I, I remember when I heard the orchestra, I was just overwhelmed with how the vibration of, of the, of the seats and everything. And just watching people in you know, my, my looks, I can see my dad, he had this big smile on his face, probably from my reaction, but I just remember how loud it was and just seeing all of the people on the stage playing this music and uh, just being enamored really with, especially the brass. I mean, that's what really, I know that now, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know that's what it was. Um, but it was just, this overwhelming sensation of sound and it came from everyone. It came from every, every single person who was on the stage, you know, and then when Turndot was singing um, her aria, I, I do know that I was crying at that point. And I just, I was just fixed on, on her throughout the entire, her entire performance. So I, I suppose overwhelming for, for me, if I were to put it in musical terms is that feeling that we get as musicians when we, Sort of, the, it's like that. Uh, what is it? The Germans say the Heilige Kunstmusik. It's like that, the highest sort of feeling that you that one gets from that overwhelming sensation of just being captivated um, by sound. We were wondering, what was your first fully staged production or grand opera experience? Well, I'm, <laughs> my parents took me down to. Uh, we lived about uh, in California. We lived about two and a half hours from Los Angeles Opera when I was growing up in Apple Valley. And um, I actually ended up making that drive in about an hour and 50 minutes when I turned 16. I, I'd get down there real quick, <laughs> you know. But when my parents took me to see um, the first opera, I really remember after being four years old that I actually saw fully staged 
was Duke Bluebeard's Castle with Samuel Ramey and Denise Graves, uh, conducted by Kent Nagano, directed by William Friedkin. And I was 15 years old. So I was quite a bit, quite a bit older uh, after, after seeing my first opera. But that was, that was an interesting experience because, of course, being directed by William Friedkin, you know, he's the director of The Exorcist. But he made a very special part of the of the of the opera when um I think her name is Judith. I don't know if the character's name is Judith, when she finds out that Bluebeard has all of his dead wives in his in the closet or in some room. And William Friedkin directed it so that there was this big, huge ghost that just came down from one end of the Dorothy Chandler to the other side of the stage. And I remember when the when the ghost came out and it's just long and stringy, creepy, like too, super great for Halloween. We're in the month of October. So it would be awesome to see that again. But I could hear the audience go, because <gasps> <laughs> it scared everybody. <laughs> you know, that was that was a really good experience, actually. And it was uh, Denise Graves actually gave uh, tickets to my family so that we could go and see that production. So it was my, that was the the first real grand opera I do. I remember seeing that I remember more about, you know. I find myself thinking a lot about that interaction that you described with your father, where you said, I want to be the woman in the light. And he said, you can absolutely be the woman in the light. Because um, Robin and I have been speaking a lot about young people and their exposure to opera and just wondering about, and I have a niece who's five and she's never been to an opera before. So I'm thinking a lot about her first experience and how to introduce her to the art form in a way that will hopefully set up a lifelong love or lifelong mm-hmm. relationship. And so would you have any advice in terms of parents taking their young people Hmm. to offer for the first time or how to prepare them or introduce them? I think, I think the best way is just to let them see it and not to have, you know, kids are so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a stepmom. I don't have a biological child yet. I'm working on that, <laughs> but, but I, I feel like kids are, um, I met my stepson when he was four and he saw his first opera when he was six, I believe. Um, was it six? Sorry, looking to my no, husband. <laughs> That's correct. It's great. When we took him, he came to see me, and it was at the Metropolitan Opera. That was my debut at the Metropolitan Opera. I was singing Mimi in La Boheme, and we we brought him there um, to see it. And I was, I guess, the answer to my question would be just let them see it for for what it is. I mean, sort of, you can explain the story and all of that, you know. But kids are so much more, I believe so much more uninhibited than we are as adults. You know, we, unfortunately, you know, that kind of gets conditioned out of us in some way. And they see things that I believe that we oftentimes don't even realize that they're aware of. So for me, when I saw when I took Dean, um, my stepson to see La Boheme, I I just knew he was going to like act two of La Boheme. I thought he was going to like the horses and the, there was a donkey on stage and um, you know, all the, there was a clown and like this guy on, on stilts coming in doing tricks. So I just knew that he was going to love, that was going to be his act, act two. And when the show was over, I asked him, I said, what was your favorite part of of the opera? And I just knew he was going to say act two. And he was like, I actually like act three because you're in the snow and I can tell that you really are in love with the, and he knew the character's name. He's, I knew you were really in love with Rodolfo, but it's sad that, that you kind of go away from him and then you come back together and then you die. 
Wow. <laughs> I was yeah. like, wait, wait, you know, what about the horses and the and, and all of the circus acts, yeah. you know? And, and he, he was like, act two, that's, he's like, that's fun. That's nice. So I think that to, to let, and maybe that's what my parents did to me is that they just let me experience it. So I would, my advice would be to anyone who wants to go to an opera and introduce their children to an opera would just to be their children and their minds are so open, so much more open than we know. You know, and and because of that, I think maybe explaining the story to them, letting them know how long they're going to be sitting is always a good thing. Um, but just letting them explore within just within them their own selves so that they can experience that on their own and then being, you know, and then being really mesmerized by their minds, by what they tell us afterwards. I wish I could remember who shared this with me, but someone once said that when we introduce young people to an art form like that at an early age, this space opens up within them that they then mm. spend the rest of their life trying to fill. So in the sense that it creates this appetite or it creates this positive vacuum of this search for beauty or that search for that overwhelming sensation that you described of being surrounded by the sound. Yes. Uh, and also just trusting their capacity to be open. Yes. To have exactly. that. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I was just thinking about, was it Sesame Street that you did that uh, you explained about being an opera singer? I remember oh, that kid. video. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Hi, and and um, just thinking that you are probably the like that woman in the light for oh. so many kids after you did that spot. Oh, thank you. I hope so. I hope so. I hope they're, I hope they're encouraged by that. That was a lot of fun to sit with those, those young kids like that. And they're, I, I follow most of them on Instagram and uh, you know, their parents handle their Instagram pages and it's crazy to see how quickly they've all grown. Wow. Yeah. We're very curious. Um, having sent Mimi at the Four Seasons Center here in Toronto, yes. we're curious about what were your first impressions of the opera house of walking into the Four Seasons Center um, of singing in that house? First of all, I have to say, I was so happy when I touched down in Toronto. I can't even tell you. I came from Italy. I came from Milan. And I can tell I, I landed on March 18th in, in, uh, in Toronto. And I just, I was so happy to be there. I just, it just was everything for me. I mean, it was probably, I would say the highlight of my 20, um, what is that? It was 2018, 2019 season. Um, and I just, I had so much joy when I got there, probably because my dad used to minister in Canada a lot. He went on uh, 100 Huntley Street and my parents would always drive up to Toronto from Cleveland. So just for me, being in Toronto was a huge deal. Um, going to the Four Seasons was like, when I first walked in, because I actually didn't first walk in through the backstage area, I went in the, in the front. And when I first walked in, I remember being like, it, it filled, it, it filled, excuse me, while listening to me talk, it felt like, <laughs> it felt like it had the atmosphere of sort of like a, um, <laughs> please don't be offended by it, by a, like a club, you know, because oh. there's, like, <laughs> I felt like it was like I was in a club, like, okay, where's the dance music? Okay. A little bit. You know, and I really liked that feel um, of the, of the building. I liked just sort of the, I'm, I'm specifically speaking, I guess, of the architecture. I like just the way the openness of it. You can see yeah. out and see the street yeah. and all of that. You know, not every opera house has that where you can actually feel like you're like you're really a part of the city. Like you're this is the cultural section of the of the city. Mm -hmm. That's a really mm -hmm. cool feeling. Um, but the house itself, um, singing 
on on the stage in the theater with such a great acoustic was awesome. You know, having that kind of support from the orchestra, um, having feeling like, okay, wow, I can sing piano in here. And, you know, my, my vocal coach was there with me throughout that, um, that time. And he would go and like sit up in the very top balcony and he'd come back down. Like, you don't have to give any more. It's, it's great. I can hear everything. Yeah. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I can hear you when you breathe. I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. That's good to know. You know, so it was a great feeling. It was, um, I hope to come back soon. Oh, well, we, we hope you come back soon too. too. Yeah. And, um, and you're such a great storyteller too, Angel. Like I, I feel like I'm with you, like walking into the, the building and like then into the house and thanks for, for walking us through it. I really loved what Angel said about letting kids explore opera at their own pace and bringing our attention to the fact that even though they're new to the art form, they have a deep well of knowing and a deep way of experiencing what is on stage before them and what they're hearing. And I find myself thinking about this conversation coming up with Midori, where she's going to touch on something similar about the necessity of making room in the opera conversation for people who we would at first perhaps deem to be non-experts. Yeah, she tells us about going to an opera early on in her music degree, where she didn't necessarily feel the most welcomed. And that this is these are perspectives that really ought to be heard. Hi, Midori. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. We'd love to hear about your first experience of live opera. Sure. Um, my first experience with like real life, live professional opera was um, at the Canadian Opera Company. I think I was 18 and my grandma had gotten tickets for me and my dad to go see La Boheme at the Four Seasons Center. Um, I feel like I just kind of went in with a totally fresh perspective. I had an idea of what opera was, but, you know, I'd never really sat down and, and watched one from front to back, and I totally loved it. It was magical. I mean, I love the performing arts, and I love musical theater, and I love straight theater. Um, and it was a little closer to those things than I than I maybe anticipated. You know, it still has that... I mean, it, it still is live theater. It is still watching people move and feel and connect. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know why I was surprised by that, but I think it was just more, it was just so much more human than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, coming to see Falstaff in 2014 and what that experience was like to the extent that you feel like you want to share it with us and our listeners. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, um, I think, that was my second year of university. So I had um, more opera experience under my belt. I mean, if anyone's listening who did an undergrad in voice performance, uh, you probably didn't do a lot of opera your first year. I know I didn't, but I learned about it and I got to see the opera at school and I had seen Bohem. And so I think it was kind of near the beginning of my second year that we went to see Falstaff at the COC, um, which I loved, by the way. I I have such a strong image of that big yellow kitchen. Um, <laughs> I loved that big, big yellow kitchen. Um, but what 
I remember most about that trip actually had nothing to do with Falstaff. We like got bussed over from Waterloo into the city and it's always so fun coming into the city and like the buildings just start to get taller and taller and everything starts to turn into chrome and we get out um, in front of the Four Seasons Center and there's this huge poster up on the side of the Four Seasons Center for a show that was coming up that they were doing, um, Puccini's Madama Butterfly. And it was a woman in like what what was supposed to represent kind of traditional Japanese dress. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, is that, a, is that a white woman? Like, is it a white woman in yellow face? I was like, what is going on? And I felt like, you know, um, in like a horror movie when the main character can like see a ghost and no one else can see the ghost. And, and they're like, oh my God, do you guys see that? Like, it's just like some spooky headless woman over there. And everyone's like, oh, what are you talking about? I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, that just totally struck me. And now as someone who's been doing opera for, I guess, close to a decade, which seems crazy. I'm like, I, I look back and I can't believe how surprising that was to me because of how little I knew about, you know, the way opera kind of works, I guess. But yeah, I was really surprised by that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Midori, and and also for for drawing that illustration so clearly around like the experience of it's like I'm seeing a ghost and no one else is seeing it, and the, the discombobulation or the isolation in that moment, in that very mm-hmm. um, powerful moment. So when you saw the poster for such a well loved opera like Madame Butterfly, and you described such an alienating sort of experience, I'm wondering if at that moment, if you had planned already to go into opera specifically, and what drove you to keep going with it? I mean, there's so much about it that makes me love it. Um, and there's so much about it I want to change. I think that that was sort of a beginning or a catalyst for these thoughts because, you know, if this is an industry I want to stay in, I have to have these thoughts. I feel like it's my responsibility to have these thoughts, especially as someone, I mean, I'm a very Western person. I consider myself, and I also have a lot of white privilege. I have to acknowledge that in so many ways, like the opera industry was built around that and built for me in a lot of ways this was like a really small window into the ways that it's not for me and it's not for so many other people in, in more intense ways and in more harmful ways. Like, yeah, it was like this little glimpse into that unfortunate reality. I think sometimes it feels like whatever you do in life, you have to decide every day that that's what you want to do. And I hope to decide every day to want to sing opera and I hope to decide every day to try and make the opera space a better one for people who would feel alienated by that poster and for people who are alienated in more ways than that and in in really aggressive ways from this industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about changes you'd like to see or 
things that you do in your day-to-day practice to be more, to sort of facilitate those changes that you need or want to see? Oh, that's such an overwhelming question. Yeah, sorry. It's a big one. I know. (laughs) No, it's okay. It's just like, it just feels like something that one person, um, especially someone like myself who holds a lot of privilege, I just feel like I can't answer alone and I would never want to answer alone. But um, mm, I think, I think so much of, of it is it just, it's just about changing attitudes and doing a lot of personal learning and growth at every, like at every level in the industry. I think there's this attitude of like, Oh, these marginalized communities need us. They need us. So we'll offer our hand because they need our help. And it's like, no, the industry needs their help. Like we need the help of those communities. We, we need to reach community and build community to make art that is effective and long lasting. Like, I mean, even if it's, even if we view it as totally symbiotic, we have to view it that way as opposed to viewing it as like a t- in, in a tokenistic way or as an act of charity. It's not, you know, like comp- big companies are lucky that artists of minority experience are ready to do that work and are in some cases even offering like companies should be jumping on that chance in the most um, healthy way. And in a way where those artists are compensated to like the best of the company's ability. Um, I think it seems so overwhelming to think like, what can, what can I do as opposed to what can I lend myself to? What can we do? What can we build together? Yeah, it is really a community effort. And um, you really highlighted, I think beautifully how much, and it was what I was trying to get at as well is like how much as a BIPOC artist, how much responsibility falls on us. Thank you for really beautifully sharing your experience around that. Something you were saying earlier, Midori reminded me of my early music education in my undergrad and how I had this great music history prof, Dr. Alan Gilmore, who really emphasized the connections between the visual art of the time and the literature of the time and the political movements of the time and how that made its way onto the opera stage and influenced the composers and the librettists of the day. And I, like you're saying, I was like, we need, in order to grow as an art form, in order to remain relevant and vital and alive, to be something that's alive, it's like this art form needs to be learning from what's around us in the city, in the community. Otherwise, it's hard to make an argument for our ongoing existence or, or that's mm-hmm. a conversation we need to have. Definitely. It's such a disservice that we do ourselves to make anyone feel like they're not welcome because the most amazing voice you've ever heard in your life can come from anywhere. I mean, that person didn't have to study at Juilliard and they don't even have to be technically perfect, but we do ourselves such a massive disservice by, by turning people off from this work and not letting them find their voice when, when they do feel that drive to like to, to close people off from that possibility. In a lot of my daily interactions, people don't necessarily other me, or if they do, it's so 
micro aggressive that I kind of like tune it out. Um, and it's, it's not an experience that I would say like plagues my daily life. And so that poster was like a little bit of a, Hey, don't get too, too comfortable because this stuff is still going on and people still believe in this practice and they still believe it's okay. They'll tell you to your face. They think it's okay. I, (laughs) I have beef with Madam Butterfly. (laughs) And I mean, that is just such a ingrained part of opera history. So it's like, okay, if that, if that has such a stronghold in this industry, what kind of hold do I have? You know, I, I feel like I can't contest a piece of music that's been popular for as long as that's been popular, but I sure don't like it. (laughs) I sure have beef with it. And it just reminds me that I have to, uh, I have to be a listener and I have to, um, I just always have work to do on myself. And then hopefully that internal work I can put out into the industry and be a good force in in the opera space. Great, Midori. It's so grateful to have you here. I'm curious about like what you said about wanting to believe in it and like the, the love that you do have if you have it and when you feel it. Like, if you could share a little bit with us about those moments that keep you coming back, those moments that keep the flame alive and that keep the belief alive that we're moving toward something that you can and want to believe in or where you've had the, the sparks Mm -hmm. around that. Yeah. It's easy to believe in something that I feel connected to. Um, when I watch my friends make a piece of art, when I watch my colleagues work, um, and put themselves into it, I believe in that. I think, you know, I mean, this is what everyone says, but there's a kernel of truth in in the fact that opera does encompass these huge emotions and these big human experiences that can be so touching. It, It sucks to have anything get in the way of that. And I feel like a lot of what goes on in this industry gets in the way of communicating that human feeling to a human audience member. You know, like it, I feel like people feel like they have to jump through hurdles or have a freaking degree in music theory to come see an opera. I believe in creating a space that everyone feels comfortable in. I believe in listening to music, no matter what your like comprehension level is. An analysis that comes from someone who's, never heard the piece before and is not into classical music at all is just as important to me as an analysis from an expert. Everyone has ears. Everyone has, an, you know, their opinions about it. I just think that things can feel really one note at the moment, music pun. And <laughs> people feel like, you know, in musical theater, if you think, oh, the music man's not for me. I'm going to check out Hamilton. I think in opera, people get told that they don't understand what they're listening to. That makes them feel like they don't get it. And they feel like, okay, this is all one way. No one's going to explain it to me and I don't feel welcome here. I'm not going to listen to it. But if we could offer them a broader range 
and cultivate this feeling of like, hey, you know, come on in. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to wear a gown, but you're totally free to wear a gown. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Midori. It's, it's lovely to get insight into the vision that people have for the future of the art form. What was really profound to me was Midori's experience with representation and seeing this non-Asian artist featured as Asian and how common and socially acceptable yellow face can still be. Yeah, it also strikes me the the importance of treating every individual's experiences as unique and not lumping together people of a certain group or of a certain community that Midori can be someone who had that negative reaction and that negative um, experience. And yet she can also hold a deep love of the art form. Like her experience is comprised of these two potentially contradictory things. And then she is actively engaged in this, in this mission or this work to, uh, to break down systems that aren't working for us and to open things up for people. Um, but I'm just really struck to the, to the way that a person can encompass multitudes, can encompass the positive, like the best things of the art form and know the worst things of the art form at the same time. I, f- I feel like that comes with having a really deep love of something where to hold it so closely, you have to really understand everything about it. And a lot of times that includes some of the ugly stuff too. Right. Yeah. And by virtue of, you know, looking to the past and, and also clocking the way our relationships have changed vis-a-vis the material that we see represented on stage and doing all we can now to engage with those important questions. And yet also knowing that the next generation that's going to follow us, like, I love how, how much, Midori's rallying like her generation in terms of the movement forward. But we also need to be open to the fact that the next generation is going to reflect on us, reflect on what we were talking about in 2020 and what we were creating. And they're going to have judgments and opinions and feelings about it. And we don't quite know yet to the extent whether we have failed or succeeded. You know, we'll have to see how how we stand the test of time. Yeah, I was just going to say only time's going to tell with that one. Um, We're at this really critical point, I think, with all the reckoning that's coming that COVID's really allowed us to have where we have time to step back and reflect on all these things. And I feel like Midori's message was very powerful before, but she's in a certain zeitgeist right now that um, I'm really excited to see where this goes yeah, and it's it's interesting, like speaking about people um, holding multitudes within them, it might surprise our listeners to know that COC music director Johannes Davus also had a not-so-good first opera experience for an entirely different reason. So here he is, COC music director Johannes Debus. Johannes, we'd love it if you could tell us about your first time experiencing opera. Okay, so let's row back in time quite a bit. And um, I must have been 10 years old, something. And my parents said, oh, tonight we're going to the opera. 
And um, I have to admit that I, at that time, opera was a bit of a stranger to me. Other music was much closer to my heart, so to speak. Anyway, I, yeah, I decided I should give it a try. And uh, why not going with my parents and my siblings? So we went and um, it was in a city about, I was like a 45 minute drive to that city from where we lived. So it was, it was kind of a, a family road trip of some sorts, you know. And, um, and then we got into that theater it's all, yeah, it was, it was exciting. I have to say that, um, remembering the lights going down and mm. the smelling the, 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 the special, um, scent that's in the air in every theater. I would say there's something special about it when you, when you enter uh, a theater space as if, uh, I don't know, as if the theater itself would be some kind of living creature. It seems to breathe and it seems to have a certain, um, can we say, a, a certain flair and a certain perfume or a certain aura. And yes, it. I would say it comes with a characteristic smell. Maybe it's sort of the old, uh, the old curtain or wh- whatever, how old the theater is uh, um, that helps anyways so then um you probably want to know what kind of opera it was it was mozart's the abduction from the seraglio uh which i would say is 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 a good piece to start opera with because the music i feel i find is is very accessible and it's very rich the story maybe for a 10 year old uh, leaves you with some question marks or you do not get everything of course, but um, yeah, it, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a good piece. Anyway, I still love it, but I had great problems with that production. Ah. And um, the very few things I remember are sort of the things that I at that time uh, didn't like that much. I believe that the the production team at that time, and it was a bit common with that piece to try to update it in a way that you you would say, oh, it's playing sort of in the uh, Middle East, and uh, you put a spotlight on the the many conflicts that are existing in in that region, or the contemporary tensions, or it, it, exactly, and and then you know you easily get into into having a military jeep on stage. And I'm not sure if if that's the core of the piece. Um, I would doubt that. Um, I'm not saying that you cannot bring a military jeep on stage. Um, but if that is sort of the only m- mean um, of interpretation or the only point or the main point you want to make with that piece, I think you missed something anyway. So um, I think I got home with my parents and I was not asking them, Hey, when are we going to go back to the opera? It was not, it was not the perfect experience for me. Yeah. I'm curious, Johannes, when you left with your parents to take the voyage, the journey to the opera house, do you recall what your expectations were? 
what you were expecting versus what your experience was when you actually got there? I cannot clearly remember that, but a certain idea of it has to be something really special, um, if not magical, something that is unlike anything I had seen before. And right, you know, now I, I would definitely say that's exactly what it is. And it can happen and it should happen. Um, and I would say that's the great thing about opera, that when it happens, when all those elements, the music, uh, the visuals, the, the, the text, the acting, um, when all of that somehow makes sense and, and, and comes together, it, it really becomes this incredible Wunderwerk. It's like a miracle, you know? Mm-hmm. And it it can really transform you in in certain ways. It can it can actually give you so much food in a way for your you know where your emotion food for emotion for your emotion for your emotional center. Um, but also it can give you food for thought. Um, Certainly, yes. I think some of the best experiences when we go to theaters, it might be opera, it might be drama or ballet or any performing art, or maybe even any art. I think we should really include every art form. Um, The best experiences for me are the ones where I leave with still having some questions. And so it keeps keeps me busy, keeps me thinking keeps me going, and then hopefully at some point arriving somewhere. Do you think growing up in Europe made um, a difference to your exposure and developing your appreciation for opera? I mean, I, I would say, I would say at least you have more access to it, clearly. You have more direct access to it in Europe than maybe in other parts of the world. But I don't think that uh, because of having more access to it, uh, you automatically uh, will love it more or deeper than maybe someone who does not have that same access. Sometimes, you know, if you live, if you kind of live in abundance, you don't uh, actually cherish what you have. You don't see it. You you know, you take it for granted. And uh, for someone who does not have this form of abundance it's it's even more so precious and holy and dear and and important but in a certain way i would say it might help you to to collect some experience and through that to gain some perspective um and to be able to maybe then put certain things in in context yeah, that, that might be sort of um, a, a positive aspect of uh, growing up in, in this kind of in, in this kind of density of um, operatic um, activities. I love that Johannes had this negative first experience, but it didn't turn him off of opera forever. 
Yeah, it's because I think about that a lot because it breaks my heart to think someone might come for a first time and have a negative experience for who knows who knows what. Maybe it was raining and then they sat all day in their wet sweater and they got cold as they sat and watched the three hours. But um, it breaks my heart to think that some people might have that first negative experience and not return. And also we're keen for our listeners to know that there's no one type of audience member. There's no one right way to attend or to listen to opera. Everyone's going to have a different experience and different people bring different things to their experience in terms of how they're able to describe it too, which is super cool. I'm thinking about Sherry Boyle, who we're going to hear from next. So Sherry Boyle is a visual artist. She's known for her uh, working in a range of media, including sculpture, painting, installation, and drawing. And she's been exhibited all over the world. But she didn't see her first opera until 2010 here at the COC. And I think she's a great example of someone who can come in from a completely different world, completely different field of practice in terms of her visual art, and just have such a rich experience and nuanced experience as a newcomer to the art form that in turn illuminates our understanding. So as people who work within the art form and know it, she opened up a whole new way of of listening and seeing to me. So let's hear from visual artist Sherry Boyle. So Sherry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your artistic practice. Oh, I'm a visual artist that lives here in Toronto and have um, based much of my practice here since the very late 90s. I've been involved in performance um, through Canada and internationally, as well as sculpture, drawing, painting. So usually uh, my work would be presented in a gallery or museum context, but I've also had a long history with working in theaters or community centers or anywhere that kind of a stage and people gather to see live um, experimental theater that involves music. And my part would be overhead projections. And I was wondering, how did you first become interested in opera? What made you decide to see one for the first time? I honestly was never interested in opera. (laughs) I had no family relationship to the art form, um, no formal education or experience with it as a child. I grew up in Scarborough. There was no access or anyone in my, um, you know, social circle that had ever gone. So it was just outside of my realm. It wasn't until um, early in the 2000s that I was offered um, a ticket through a friend of mine um, who had a box for the season, Sarah Milroy, who's an art critic and involved in the arts. And she invited me um, in 2010 to see Aida. And I went completely blindly. I didn't look up any of the kind of story behind it. Um, I was really mostly most of my experience with durational art had been experimental film, you know, sitting in dark theaters for hours, watching somebody's grinding vision. (laughs) So I was, I was really interested in the durational part, but I really didn't know what to expect. That's cool. I was just wondering about what your expectations would have been going in for the first time. And that durational piece is really interesting, particularly when I think about Wagner and about those epically long operas. And that's such a formative piece of it for people. I think Um, it's huge. Mm. Yeah. And so how did that compare then with your experience of of seeing Aida back in 2010, your first opera? What, What happened for you? Well, I don't think you can underestimate how much of a, a 
kind of physical feeling of being in, you know, a, th- a theater for that long might uh, affect people's perception of what that art form might be if they have zero experience, but that's what they've heard. Um, what I was amazed by was because I was so lucky to see that performance as a first exposure and Sandra Rodvanovsky, can yeah. I, am I pronouncing that right? Was, yeah. She was singing that night and I had no, had no idea um, about her, about anything. I I completely just can say that I lost time. I have no conception or memory of the time that passed during the experience because I was so immediately riveted as a fellow performer, but also an audience member to the experience of being in this incredible acoustic situation where somebody who had such um, athletic and emotional prowess in their vocal cords was giving something to me, uh, you know, in the same space, like only feet away, really. She was, she gave such a profound performance and I was so deeply moved, um, that I have no memory of how long that took. And I honestly was, um, had very visceral, emotional, ecstatic experiences that ranged from, wanting to sob out loud with just like almost the tension of something so beautiful happening in front of me. Mm. And then also wanting to like, th- I kept wanting to throw myself off the balcony <laughs> in like <laughs> excitement because, um, and it's funny because Robin's dog's named Lemmy. And I actually saw a motorhead concert with Slayer back in the nineties. And I was, there was a balcony when these bands were on and I had the same visceral experience and people at that show were actually were launching themselves off the balcony in stage dives. Nobody was hurt. It's another time. It's crazy, but that kind of physical visceral experience when something moves you and kind of chemically alters you almost. Mm. Well, and I love the description of the physical that you're going into it as well. And it also reminds me of the fact that the atmosphere we associate with an opera house today isn't necessarily the atmosphere of an opera house 200, 300 years ago. Like this raucous or this more embodied response to the music. It's really mm-hmm. interesting to think about that on a on a spectrum of time, on a continuum. Sure. Since the, the early days of the, of the form. And I'm also curious, particularly because of the fact that you're a visual artist and you work in a, in a visual medium – what your response was to the visual language of the production, to the aesthetic of, of th- this particular production, Tim Albury's production. Well, I, that was also my first, you know, people coming into the art form, it's such a Eurocentric form. It's such a kind of sense of like decadence and kind of an almost, you can have an assumption of a past kind of antiquated art form. Is it going to be stuffy? Is it going to be hard to access? Um, and so it was interesting that the first one I saw was kind of um, uh, contemporary design. So it was, uh, you know, that it was translated into a different moment in time as opposed to more traditionalist. So I was very interested in that as an artist in the interpretation and the translation and those kind of questions that a director or a stage designer would ask themselves of how they wanted to bring that story to the stage. So I was thinking about that, but I didn't have an overly familiar relationship to the story. So I couldn't do any comparison or anything because I'm sure you know that's the interesting thing about opera too from what I understand people that go over the course of their life really do have these long comparative relationships seeing the the same stories that they've grown accustomed to over and over again Um, I 
think that the form, and I want to give great credit to Alexander Neath because at that time it was 2010 and I had a large solo exhibition at the Art Gallery of Ontario on right then. He had just recently come to the city and he had brought his young daughter to the exhibition and he'd reached out to me after this. I believe he already knew Sarah and invited me to come back to the opera and to come again and again. And all, my relationship that developed to the form really directly came from his encouragement and kind of cross-disciplinary interest in bringing somebody from a visual art form and kind of reaching out to a city that he wasn't from and getting more people interested in a form that they might not have known. So he that was a very smart connection because the visuals, of course, are my language and the narrative is also incredibly important to me um, through the, the kind of theater work that I've done or just my personal interest in story. But the lighting, the costume, the color, the dirt, you know, the 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 sound. And then it's that's not even touching on the symphony and the live instrumentation, right? So it's a multi-sensory experience. I was totally lost in okay. what Sherry was saying. No, um, I cool. just yeah. respond. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was I'm I'm really curious where you said um you mentioned going to a motorhead concert and a Slayer concert. So, you know, the atmosphere of a rock concert versus, versus going to an opera house. Mm. I am obviously, my dog is named after Lemmy Kilmister. I'm a big Motorhead fan, fan as well. And I'm very aware opera does come with its baggage. Mm. Did you find, did you have any expectations about walking into that opera house for the first time as to what you might encounter? Um, I think that something that I find even through being an artist, and this happens in art museums and galleries, is the intimidation factor. And that has to do with class and accessibility and who's felt traditionally welcome and uh, excluded or included. So that has all sorts of things to do with, as we know, every every single kind of identity that you might uh, claim can be either brought in or you know left out. Um, for myself, as I was from a real working class family, and I didn't have that kind of cultural education as a child, and I didn't have that um, relationship to opera, of course, I would have had the regular assumptions of it being uh, a kind of uh, expensive and class-driven art form that was uh, super European in a way that I wasn't you know, culturally associated with. Um, so maybe some of that would have kind of kept it off my radar because I was always looking for more community and kind of viscerally driven, like authentic experience that was super inclusive. That said, I can draw a lot of parallels between that Slayer show and the opera um, in terms of the audience um, being so deeply invested in a particular art form, knowing it so so well, like having such a strong personal experience with all of the kind of details of uh, each note in each song and each lyric and, and each individual playing on that stage, having these really, really um, emotional and kind of profound, almost prayer-like relationships that, that honor the artist and kind of have a ritualistic um, experience of being gathering together with other people that really, really respect a form and kind of having a, uh, an emotional kind of cathartic it, just being so happy to be in that room to to hear something, and you know, the the only difference is the head banging. You know? <laughs> 
I would love to see that in the Four Seasons Center. Oh my god, the hair, like, all in synchronized, like, beautiful. Mm. That would be incredible. Something I'm thinking about is the fact that that production of Aida was quite controversial at the COC, mm. because a lot of folks, like you said, who had a tradition, a relationship with the piece that they'd seen it over time, were expecting the grandiose, the pomp, the, you know, mm. the grand sets and costumes and elephants paraded across the stage, whereas this version was, you know, the psychology and the emotion of it was mm. there, but it was stripped down, it, like a more minimalist production than we might see, you mm -hmm. know, other times. And so I'm curious about if you haven't already mentioned it what got you coming back like what was the, the well the experience of being in the room when someone's singing to that level like the kind of olympian like excellence um of the voice that was just so uncanny and profound to be in the room so that was i i needed to experience that more because it really activated a kind of something in my neural pathways that really were zinging, you know, in a, in a really, um, like I left the theater almost disembodied and also wanting to recreate those sounds in my own head, like going back onto the subway afterwards, like trying not to try to sing opera on the subway. <laughs> yeah, great. I think we just have a few more minutes here left. I'm wondering, Robin, if you want to want to take us home with a last question or two. All right. Um, my final question is, where can our audience find you, Sherry? Oh, that's nice. Um, well, I will be having my own big solo show coming up in February, the first week of February at the Gardner Museum here in Toronto, across the street from the ROM. Um, and that will be opening, I think, February 5th. Um, and before then, I'm working, that's something I've been working on for almost two years. So it's a huge production. Um, before then, you can visit my website at sherryboyle.com. Put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, folks, go check it out. Yeah. And um, thank you for sharing your time with our art. And now it would be lovely for us to spend some time with your art. Did that make Please sense? Do. Did I reverse it? <laughs> no, it completely makes sense. And I've been so inspired by theater that my exhibition is very much on the themes of the theater that you'll even be walking through the back wings onto a stage, you know, and get to um, look at a museum through a whole completely different performative lens. So it's definitely cross-disciplinary time in Toronto. That was such an interesting interview. I oh, really yeah. love chatting with Sherry. Me too. She was great. I really resonated with the idea when she said she went to the to the Slayer and the Motorhead concert. She had this sort of transcendent experience. Yeah. And then she went to the COC and had a similar transcendent experience. And I myself grew up, opera was sort of my bad girl, um, rebellious music. I listened mm -hmm. to a lot of metal. I listened to a lot of, a lot of rock music. And I wasn't necessarily someone that I would have considered a conventional opera audience. It was, I'm going to sneak away and listen to Saturday afternoon at the opera. And oh, I love it. And that was, uh, sneaky. Yeah, that, was that was how I rebelled. <laughs> love it.
Um, I find myself thinking about what Sherry shared about that feeling of almost wanting to throw herself off the balcony, like being so overcome and how Angel talked about the overwhelming impact of the music too. And Johannes talked about being sort of entranced and swept up into everything. And it's reminding me about how we receive the music in our bodies, right? In terms of the way sound travels in the air and, and the way it impacts us. And that's a good reminder for me in the sense of like, we need to be careful about this gatekeeping that we're doing either purposefully or inadvertently, because at the end of the day, the prerequisite for appreciating opera is, are you human? And who's to say, and animals might enjoy it too. Exactly. And like, you can get that transcendence. Anybody can have that transcendent state in a vast array of venues. So I would hope that the opera house can feel really inclusive and inviting to all kinds of people so that they can have the potential to this incredible physical experience like everyone spoke about, like I've experienced and I'm sure you've experienced too, because we wouldn't be here having this conversation if neither of us had that. Totally. And I'm curious, Robin, like what's your take on people preparing for the opera or like our feeling this feeling that we're, we should give them all, all this information ahead of time in terms of the plot and the musical structures in order to enhance their experience. Um, like what's your take on that in, in the sense of if that's a beneficial thing to do, or if that's like an overwhelming or patronizing thing to do that could in fact turn them off? That's a good question. I'm kind of of two minds about it, actually. Um, if we're looking to something that's really super historically accurate. Um, I'm thinking back to Turandot this past season, where there was a lot of hand gestures used that was very reminiscent of a very particular style of opera. Yeah, it's the Robert Wilson production. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, How it might seem really odd without that context. However, drama is drama is drama like so if you over prepare it might get a little academic I also you know and and when we do prepare if we choose to present resources to the audience ahead of time whether that's in the program or whether that's on the website we also risk preparing them in a way that doesn't end up being the most useful thing to them in the sense of Angel's stepson, like she said, she was like, I really thought he was going to go for these things. Exactly. And in fact, what he took away and what really held his attention was something completely different than what I'd anticipated. Yeah. Like we're trying to, when we put program notes or we do pre-show chats, we're trying to manage expectations in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, giving context is really important. However, we can be managing people's expectations completely inappropriately. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I find myself, you know, if I'm a stage director on a production or if I'm a dramaturg on a production, I'm going to prepare in very different ways. So if I'm approached about directing a project, something that's very important to me is that I do have an emotional reaction to the content. So if I listen to that score and my heart, something doesn't call up to my heart and to my emotional, physical being, then it's going to, I feel like it's going to be very difficult for me to do that work justice 
in terms of guiding a creation process and a rehearsal process through that. But if something grabs me, that's certainly a prerequisite emotionally. But then I will do all like, you know, all the needy, the, the needy, all the, this is my combination of nerdy and geeky. <laughs> came out as needy. <laughs> all, that, all that work. Then I will dig in. Like I will dig in. And I love looking at letters, like correspondence between the composer and the librettist, for example, mm, as they're yes. creating the work. Or if you can get that personal firsthand account of what was in the zeitgeist at the time that it was being created, I find that really juicy and fun um, in order to then approach it as a reinterpretation here and now. So, but we'll, we'll chat with stage directors, you know, ho hopefully further in our season of podcasts, we'll get more into the nitty gritty of how stage directors participate and uh, prepare for opera production. And that totally brings me to one of the criteria that I do that makes me look at the program notes ahead of time. Um, if it's a difficult production. And so if there are issues of representation or there are tropes that are no longer appropriate and maybe never should have been appropriate, I want to read about what the company has done mm. to reflect this. Are, right. they, are they trying to dismantle something? Right. How is that being handled? Did they bring in consultants did they talk yeah, to the community. community that is impacted by this that's one of the really really important things for me um as well as then if you're getting into more the avant-garde or really modern style of direction mm -hmm. that relies heavily on some academic knowledge yeah or there's a very intense reinterpretation that's happening yes exactly corollaries can help. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because I like getting a sense that there's been a lot of deep thought on the part of the creative team in terms of the choices they're making. And at the same time, I acknowledge that the audience is 50% of the meaning making. So the act of creating meaning is only complete once the audience attends and lends themselves as the receivers, the interpreters as well. So it's this, it's an interesting balance between purposefully creating meaning and yet knowing that there's got to be this openness to it because the audience is going to read in and interpret their own experiences as they receive what is on stage before them and what they're hearing. So it's a, it's an interesting balancing act between the known and the unknown and the controlled and the uncontrollable. Absolutely. And I know if I can't see myself on that stage in some way, well, I, I can't engage the same way yeah. that I can, if I can imagine myself in the story. Mm -hmm. And that can be really challenging in a city like Toronto, yeah, where we have such an incredibly diverse population. Yeah, I'd like, I really like knowing that the directors of, and the creative team and everything that's gone into making a production happen has really carefully considered the audience as being 50%, like you said, of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm finding connections between that and the fact that Johannes saw this modern reinterpretation that he didn't care for. And Sherry saw a modern reinterpretation in terms of the Aida that she loved. So it's that, um, not that those were, Johannes was speaking about a different production that he'd seen, but that the, um, again, that no two audience members are going to experience it in the same way. 
And it also strikes me, Robin, like you and I are just talking about like the act of first attending or the act of preparing for preparing to receive. So right before that downbeat, like we're still at the very beginning of this journey. Like I'm so excited right. about this whole series to talk to people and to talk to one another about this because we're just scratching the surface. You know, we're just in that very first moment, like Meister to the pit, Meister to the pit. <laughs> we're still there, right? And there's already so much to talk about. That's awesome. And that's what I love about opera and why I'm so excited about this podcast, that we could dig into all this, really, the minutia of everything that makes these productions so incredibly spectacular and moving. Totally. Can I ask you a question, Robin? Sure. So what do you find most interesting about opera? Like if you had to sort of boil it down to one thing in terms of why you attend, like why you show up at the opera house, like what would that be? How hyper dramatic every, mm-hmm. like everything is so heightened and there's just, it's yeah. The, the drama just blows me away and the almost Olympian yeah. sort of athleticism that's oh, yeah. required to mount these productions to have these people to sing over operas I mean over operas oh my gosh we've been saying opera so much I feel like we should start a drinking game um over orchestras yeah to sing over an orchestra like that athleticism is is just astounding how about you uh I've there's so many things and one of the things I'm really drawn to is a lot of our listeners referenced like their senses, like their sensory experience. Like Johanna spoke about the smell and like Angel really spoke about her like bodily sensations. And I think that's it too, is that I feel um, it, it just really like, you know, that thing of like you get goosebumps and your hair stands on it, like, you know, the back of your neck. And I just feel like it, it really calls out to my whole person. Uh, like, the full dimensions of who I am physically. And in this way, I have to say that sometimes the experiences in rehearsal can be really, really exciting because you're so close to that singer in the rehearsal hall. But that being said, there's nothing like the orchestra. There's nothing like being in a really beautiful opera house with the orchestra and the synthesis. That's the other thing, the powerful. Mm, Yeah. All the, all the artisans and craftspeople and the orchestra and the chorus and the soloists and just knowing the mammoth task that it is to put all those resources together and to get everyone rowing in the same direction, I think is something Alexander tends to say. And it's very true. It's a lot of coordination and human effort. It's really remarkable what humans can do when we work together. Well, that wraps up our first episode. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time and we'll talk with acoustician Bob Esser and musicologist Hannah Chan Hartley about how we hear opera. It's a fascinating chat and I learned so much. (laughs) So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly e-opera newsletter at coc.ca slash e-opera. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.